This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide SSDs, 40 gigabit per second network connections, and top of the line hardware to run your server on. It deploys Linux in seconds from the Linode cloud and you can choose your Linux distro and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe, and they have a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. So definitely go check them out. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, cloning, scaling, and everything else that you want. So definitely get the most out of your Linux node and check them out at linode.com. And check them out at devchat.tv slash linode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Erica Sadoon. Hello. Guy Rambo. Hello. And I'm James Zuber. And today we have a guest. We have Saroosh Kanlu, who many of you are familiar with, and he's been on the show before. But recently, uh, during WWDC, he came out with an app that was pretty cool, uh, Pure Swift, called Beacon. And I used it to figure out what was going on and plan events during the, the conference and all conf WWDC. And we thought we'd bring him on to talk about that. So, Saroosh, say hello. How's it going? Hi, everyone. So, can you tell us about Beacon? Yeah, for sure. So um, for the attendees or for the uh, listeners of this show who, who were at WWDC, this may be a little bit of a recap, but Beacon is an app that uh, me and Ashley Nelson Hornstein built for basically telling people that you're available and telling people that you want to hang out. And we, it was like a couple of weeks before DubDub. And um, we were like, oh, we should like build an app. Like we're kind of bored with, we didn't have much contract work. And we're like, hey, we should do something. And um, we're like, hey, what about this idea? And we're like, oh, that could be really good for WWDC. And we only had about six weeks at that time before the before the conference actually started. So we like basically, you know, pedaled to the metal, got started coding, and built this app and got it out in time for for DubDub, which was really fun. And basically, the way it works is you kind of log in with your Twitter account, and it figures out who your Twitter mutuals are, so your people that you follow that follow you back, so like you know, really close friends. Um, and it will basically let you post events to, you know, the people near you, the people who are your friends or just even globally and like basically say that, Hey, I'm available. Hey, I want to hang out. I'm trying to go to this movie. Um, does anybody else want to come? And then other people on the platform can see that join the event. And then you can kind of hash out and organize things in the comments. It's been a really fun ride. We've been working on it since DubDub as well. And we've been kind of setting ourselves up for going to other conferences as well and kind of providing the service there. So I just started kicking the tires around, but I know James has been using this for a while. And at least to me, what really stands out is how incredibly clear and beautiful the layout is. The user interface is just so simple and elegant. How did you get there? <laughs> um, that maybe in some kind of back channel, I could show you the version of the version of the app that existed when it was just two engineers that were working on it. It's about as ugly as you would expect. We brought a another friend on Linda Dong, and she was generously able to help out with some time. And she kind of like punched out this design in like it was something like three hours. It was crazy. And uh, we saw it. We were like, okay, well, we obviously like have to have to implement this. And so we implemented the design that she like kind of um, 
you know, mocked up for us in sketch. And that's like that beautiful design and the bright colors and the, all that stuff that you see. That's all, that's all Linda. It's just beautiful. There's lots of white space there. Everything you need to do anything is just so obvious and clear. And she did an amazing job. But how did you have the conversation? How did that work? The, the back and forth with her? Um, yeah, we, so, uh, Ashley and I, um, Ashley is better friends with her than I am. Um, but we were just sort of like, Hey, we kind of need some design love on this thing. What does your schedule look like for the next few weeks? And she was like, Oh, I'm a bit busy, but this project does look cool. And you know, it's for WWDC. It's like a community thing. Uh, and I would love to help out. And I guess we just like kind of nerd sniped her and she was like, well, now I got to work on this. And so from the moment that we had our call, so like maybe later that day, she was like, oh, what do you guys think about this? And we were like, we like that a lot. And uh, we kind of did some back and forth revisions with her. And she was super, super generous with her time. And yeah, what you what we ended up with was more or less what you're what you're looking at, what you're touching. So how did you do the back and forth? What kind of issues as an engineer do you go to that designer with? So um, I think Ashley and I have a reasonable like product sense. And so we we had the bulk of the product sort of designed from an how it how it feels perspective rather than a how it looks perspective. And so the concept of like, you know, the circular avatars that all line up next to each other, that was actually in the original thing that we had built as just, you know, two engineers trying to design an app. But we basically were like, this like badly needs a coat of paint. And that was the stuff we were just sort of like, hey, what do you think of this? And she was like, well, it has the bones, but like it definitely needs like a lot of work. And she, you know, I don't know what it is the designers do, but they they do a very good job with it. So she kind of helped out with the picking of the colors, the positioning of the buttons, deciding what information should be in the main feed, like in terms of when is this event, where is this event, who's organizing this event. Um, she helped with a lot of that stuff. Um, she helped clarify a lot of the things, especially in the create flow. Um, and we've actually been working on a newer new version of create that she helped us out with as well that enables you to do a couple of interesting new things. One of the things people asked for at WWDC was the ability to make an event that didn't have any uh, any attendance limit. Originally, the limit of, on the number of attendees, we set to like five or eight because we thought people were going to use it for like dinner. But people ended up um, using it as like, you know, just for any kind of event that was going on. So the Beer, beer Bash had one. The like pre-keynote line around the block had its own event. And there's like more than, you know, there's more than eight people that want to want to be in that event and chat in the comments. And um, so we ended up shipping with a limit of 50, and we actually realized 50 is even too low for some events. We thought there was no way anybody was going to get to 50. Um, but so we, we eventually decided, you know, we need to actually nix this limit entirely because there are some events where, uh, where a limit just doesn't make any sense, and it, it feels almost artificially restricting, and it feels like you're, you're, you're trying to be a little bit exclusive when you're not. You're just trying to say, well, I'm just picking the maximum. Um, and so that's like this whole new create screen, which hopefully is coming out in the next few days like addresses some of those problems and Linda helped out with that as well. One of the things that just popped out to me that really just when you're working with a particular event and every event has a hue to it. Yeah. That hue follows you. If if you go into you know your feed for that event everything from the back button to and it's a custom progress wheel, right? Uh, yeah, it is a custom progress wheel. Yep. I mean, that's just genius. You haven't tried joining an event yet, have you? Unfortunately, I have no friends 
Uh, so yeah, um, if you uh, let me see if I can like let me make an event. So um, I saw Erica did an iFreaks recording, which exists. I just joined yeah. it. Yeah. So we're in. And, and so when you join it, um, you get this like really super fun confetti that like streams down from the top of the screen. And that's like another little thing where we were just like, you know, this app has to be fun and playful because if it's dry, like, you know, nobody wants to, nobody wants to play with a dry app, especially at a conference. Um, you know, you need a little, you need a little fun in your life, you know? So, so there's little touches here and there that we added, but yeah, the color of the event in the feed is the same as sort of the accent colors that you can find in sort of the comment screen when you go through to that. And that was just such a great design decision. Yeah. Was that all your friend or did the two of you, you know, have input into that? No, that was actually all us. The comment screen was designed by me and Ashley. We used the, the sort of the layout of the cell at the top that tells you who, uh, who organized it, what the name of the event is. That was from sort of, it was from one of the designs that Linda made that we ended up not using. So we're like, well, we'll just repurpose this. And then... All the rest of the stuff was basically us, and we kind of realized, like, as we were playing with it, the like default blue tint color of iOS doesn't really work for our app because it has all these bright colors that are set for it already, and so we should use one of those. And um, the one we were using, one of them, and we were like, well, why is there an accent color here on this like sort of left hand side? But that doesn't, you know, follow you around the rest of the page. We should just make the whole page have the same tint color, and we did, and we ended up really liking how it looked. So. Um, we ended up like pulling that that color basically everywhere. Um, let me. Join One of the things you did, yep. which is something in iOS design that I always want to see but I don't see enough, is basically breaking out of the standard UI kit objects or using them in a way that creates bigger gestalt. And when I saw that progress wheel, and it's not even a wheel, it's a ribbon. It's just beautiful. I just, you know, applauded you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much. That actually, it means a lot to hear you say that. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was actually a little bit of a dicey decision uh, when we were doing because we had read some research that suggests that if you use a default iOS activity indicator, that people will think that the slowness is, you know, the fault of the phone or the fault of Apple because you're using sort of their branded activity indicator. And if you use your own, if there's any slowness, you will, like the user perceives that slowness as your fault or as the app's fault rather than as Apple's fault. And so we had a little bit of like, should we do a custom? And we saw it and we were like, this is just way too much fun. Like we can't, we can't leave this out. And so we put it in. Um, Did I, you have any reference about how iOS 11 would look like? Did you follow any of the like Apple music design people were talking about yeah so yeah it looks like an ios 11 app yeah um that was one of the things that sort of like linda brought to the table is she looked at apple music and she was like you know what i bet that the rest of the os is going to look like this in not very long and um she was like okay, we're going to use really really big headers at the top they're going to be sort of left aligned and that was like one of the things that Linda brought. And she was like, you, I think you should do it like this. So we're like, oh, it looks like Apple Music. And we ended up doing it. And then, you know, sort of as the date of WWDC got closer, we were like, what if the rest of iOS 11 does look like this? Like, what is that going to mean for our app? And so when, once we saw all the like, where they call it large text in the navigation bar, that large text setting, once we saw that, we were like, oh my, like we like looked like we knew what we were doing when we built this app. 
when in fact it was just like, oh, let's build something that looks like Apple Music, and like hopefully like people will think that looks cool. And it turns out like that's just the direction that the whole OS is going. So you've talked about the UI and designing that UI. How about stepping back a little bit in history and talk about how you went or even how you got the concept and then move from that concept to your first design? Yeah, so, um, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, Ashley and I were kind of talking and um, I was going through a bit of a dry spell with contracting and she was also just like, yeah, there's some stuff around and none of the full-time jobs are interesting to me. None of the you know contracts in front of me are really that interesting to me. So like, I would really like to do something, but I don't know what to build. And I was kind of like, well, like lay, lay some ideas on me. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? Like, um, and this was actually before we had even discussed working together. I was like, oh, like, what are some of the ideas? Like, let's just, let's just chat about them. And she said, well, there's this idea and there's that idea. And I have this one for like signaling availability so that you could like tell your friends that you want to go to a movie tonight. Um, and then your friends could kind of see that, get a push notification and, and jump in. And I was kind of like, that is a really cool idea. I would love to use that. And if it could, if it was done by the time of WWDC, like WWDC is like a perfect place to basically demo and launch this thing. Cause it's a, it's a huge network of people that like already all know each other and already all want to hang out. It's also in a new place. For example, like uh, Jam and I were um, looking for lunch one day and we just didn't know the area very well. And so I posted an event on Beacon that was like, Hey, I'm going to try this new spot for lunch if anybody wants to tag along. And uh, Jam and one other friend were like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And, um, you know, it wasn't in San Francisco, so we didn't know if anything was going to be good or where anything was going to be. And we just sort of organized through the app, ended up at um, ended up at this place. And I, I mean, I thought the lunch was pretty good. I don't know, James, if you had a good time. It was good. Yeah, I, I'd never had Persian food. In the- yeah, we found this little hole in the wall Persian spot in San Jose. And it was just so good. And so, like, we really, Ashley and I really thought that um, WWDC would be just a slam dunk uh, place to kick this app off. Um and then, uh, or like, yeah, so I, I pictured her like, oh, if this could be done by WWC, that'd be really cool. And she's like, oh, that's an interesting idea. It's only six weeks away. That's like a pretty tight timeline. And I was like, well, this is something that we could do together if you're interested. And she was like, oh, that could be really cool. And we kind of talked it over for a week. And then she actually came out um, to the East Coast to visit her family. And we hung out. We're like, you know, we should, should do this thing. And so we just started working. And then basically like the, that's like how we like, found each other and found like this idea and like decided that we were going to build this thing for, for dub dub. That's cool. Cause it, it definitely solves a thing you have. Like you go to a conference and maybe you don't know anyone. A lot of people, your friends didn't get a ticket. So you go, you show up like, what do you do? I don't know. I'm going <laughs> to go to the events that everyone else goes to that are packed and loud and annoying. You, you know, you wait. Yeah. And you, you don't know the drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you don't know the cool bars in the new place. You don't know the cool coffee shops. You just don't know where people are because you know – so if, if it's San Francisco and it's 11 at night and it's WWDC, you know everybody's going to be at the Chieftain. Like just go there. You'll run into someone. But in San Jose, we just didn't have that. And so it was nice to have something where people could say, well, I'm here. I don't know if this is a good one, but I'm here if anybody wants to come come here. So worked out kind of nice. I think we should start to talk about the technical aspects of the app and – as a listener to Fatal Error, I know you're using Swift on the server. Can you talk to us about the decision and how you're doing that? Yeah, for sure. The Swift on the server thing was really interesting. Um, part of it was that I, I really, really wanted to play with it and like build something real. 
with it. I didn't just want to build like kind of a, you know, just a test app, just to play around. I wanted to build like an actual product on top of it. I pitched it to Ashley and I was like, Ashley, what if we built it in Switch on the server? One, we would get the benefit of going to WWDC and saying like, oh, we're Swift from top to bottom. We are Swift not only on the client side, but also on the server side. So there was that. And there was also just the element of like my own curiosity of like, I really want to try this thing. I'm so sick of writing JavaScript. I really don't want to write Ruby anymore either. I like the type system. I like the ability to control like my optionals and stuff. And pretty much no other languages were giving me that. I think I could have like, you can kind of push TypeScript or PureScript into giving you some of that stuff, but you get a bunch of other baggage along with it and you still end up in the, you know, the Node and the JavaScript ecosystem. And we're just, both of us are much more comfortable in Swift than, than really any other language. And so we were like, okay, well, let's test it out. And if it seems like we can build on top of it, we'll keep going. And if it seems like it's going poorly, we'll fall back to Node or Ruby on Rails or something like that. And we started poking it and there are definitely rough edges. And there's definitely like some things that we had to like dig into the source code of our framework Vapor um, to figure out. But like all in all, the value of A, both of us can really trivially get around this code base and make changes and stuff. B, you know, the like performance of Swift is is designed for, you know, mobile processors. And putting it on the server, I mean, it just screams. We use like a hundredth of the amount of RAM that the smallest Heroku Dino gives us. So it was a very, very tiny amount of RAM because it's designed for cell phones. Um, and there's no buffers of pixels. There's no, you know, there's no images. There's no uh, display backing, anything like that, which is what uses a lot of the uh, RAM in an iOS app. So our app uses something like four or five megabytes, um, even at like full load, which is really great. And just like all these benefits, we just, you know, kept working with it and kept realizing how much we liked it. And we just kind of stuck with it. I've written a few blog posts now, and we've talked, as you mentioned, on on the podcast Fatal Error about some of the things I've learned and some of the trials and tribulations and some of the abstractions I've built to kind of make things move a little bit faster as we develop things on the server. But all in all, like it was kind of a dangerous and scary decision, but I I have no regrets about it at all. I thought, you know, I, I'm having the time of my life. So how do you so, get started? Oh, go ahead. Like even like picking a framework. Like what made you pick Vapor over any of the other choices? Yeah. So um, there's a few options out there. There's Perfect, Vapor, Kitura, Zewo. Yeah. There's there's a few other ones too. We picked Vapor because we looked around and we thought there was the most like community and help around Vapor. So like we found the most Stack Overflow questions about Vapor. We found the biggest Slack community. And that Slack community saved our butts several times, which was really, really nice. Um, and it was really just a decision of, you know, this may not be the best one, but if something does go wrong, we'll at least have that support safety net there to kind of, um, to kind of pick us up um, and, and help us through the process. And everybody in the, in the Vapor Slack is super, super nice. Of course, like Vapor, like any really early stage project, has its rough edges. Uh, Vapor 2.0 is now out and... I actually haven't upgraded our app to it yet. We haven't had the chance, but I do want to do it. Uh, yeah, so it, it has its rough edges, but like, and, you know, it makes me want to like write my own that's like exactly to my specifications or whatever, but it gets, it absolutely gets the job done. And um, it's definitely, it's very, um, very much built on top of protocols. So you can extend and bring your own abstractions in the places that you want them. Um, so for example, if something, you know, needs a response object, which, you know, has a status code and like a body or whatever, Everything that accepts that actually accepts a protocol called response representable. 
So you can pass in your own response objects that you've built yourself with whatever you know constructs that you think are important. All the errors have protocols around them, stuff like that. So you can really hook into the system at really, really interesting levels and build super cool things on top of uh, on top of the stuff that Vapor already gives you. So the protocol elements are super nice as well. For you, the listeners of the iFreak Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. When you decided to go for Vapor, I'm not that familiar with them. I've only really been watching IBM. Mm-hmm. Is it just the frameworks that you put onto your own system and serve, or are you buying server space from them? Right. So since we started and since we deployed Beacon, Vapor has launched a service that is kind of like um, that is kind of like Heroku but is designed for vapor. It's called like vapor cloud or something, I think. We so we obviously didn't have that choice when we wanted to like deploy this thing. So we ended up using Heroku. IBM also has their own cloud and their server framework is designed to run on their cloud. I think their cloud is called like Bluemix and their framework is called Kitura. And those are designed to work well together. But it's it's all open source. It's just code. It's all Swift. So when you commit to something like vapor, what you end up doing is you end up getting a package.json and you have a couple of things in there. Namely, it's Vapor, the framework itself, which has all of its sub-dependencies. And then in our case, we needed a, a database adapter as well. So we needed a Postgres adapter. Um, and so putting those two things together, uh, really, that's all of our dependencies on the server right now. So once you have those, it just downloads the code. And then when you go to create what Swift calls a droplet, which is like a router, I don't know why they call it a droplet, but... You go to create this uh, droplet, and then you like call like droplet.serve, and that actually starts running the server. And so it works a lot like Express, if you're familiar with uh, the Node ecosystem. Um, and so it's it's really just an object that you just instantiate and and call a function on, and that really does everything. And then you can add um, hooks into it to respond to specific routes and do really whatever you want from there. Um, so you're you're kind of you're committing to a router. You're committing to a request object which has basically like the ability to access JSON in the payload, the ability to access parameters, URL parameters. Like, you know, if it's like built into a URL, like event slash ID, um, you can grab that ID. You're committing to that. You're committing to um, sort of the protocols around like responding to things. But, and then all, any of the internal domain logic. Uh, oh, and you also optionally can choose to use their ORM, which is called Fluent which is in very early days, there's a lot of features that it doesn't have, but there's features that it does have, and it comes built in, which is nice. And so that's the stuff that you're committing to, but it's just code that you run on your server, or on your computer at the end of the day. So when you go to run 
um, your little binary that you build, or you can use their toolbox like vapor run serve. It just runs that file that you made that creates a droplet and then calls serve on that droplet. And that's really it. So how do you do this with a constantly evolving language? Very carefully. It's just like having a client Swift app. You don't have to upgrade to Swift 4 until you're ready. If you want to be really aggressive, you could try to refactor everything to use the exact latest and greatest patterns. But probably what you're going to end up doing is refactoring the parts that you touch and then leaving the parts that work because they work. But yeah, it, it's really just like having a Swift client app. You upgrade when you're ready. You got to keep the tool chain on your on your system. We use Docker to control all that stuff, so we don't have to worry too much about sort of like Xcode updating underneath, updating out from underneath us. It's really it's running in its own sort of virtual machine container thing, so we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Um, Heroku only updates when we tell it to. So you you just got to be careful, and you just got to make sure that. Uh, um, you don't, you know, you obviously, if you, if you upgrade Swift, but don't like migrate your code, it's not going to compile. So you won't even be able to deploy anything. So there are some safeguards in place. You just got to be careful and make sure that you don't like mess something up in your migration. Pretty much given that the Swift three migration is behind us, I'm less worried about future migrations, but you know, it's a concern, but not one that like I'm overly stressed about. So I'm I'm curious what the development workflow is like. What what IDE are you using? Using Xcode? Any other <laughs> options? Like how the how's that? Yeah. So I, it, it's it's tough. When you run the thing, you can run it in in your Mac or you can run it in Linux inside Docker inside your Mac. The benefits of running it inside of Docker is that you're getting the exact same environment that you will be getting on on Heroku, which means if something is part of foundation but is not implemented yet in the like Linux version of foundation, you will know immediately because you won't even be able to like run your code against it. It'll, you know, trap and tell you that it's unimplemented. And so you'll know you need to rewrite your code. If you are developing primarily in a Mac environment, then you basically you could write code that works when linked against the Mac version of foundation, but when linked against the Linux version of foundation fails. So you wouldn't even find out about that failure until you've already deployed it since it's a runtime failure. So this is problematic. And for that reason, we decided to do everything within Docker. Docker also hosts your sort of your post, your local Postgres instance, all that stuff. It's super easy to use, which I've been really enjoying. Um, But what it means is that you can't use Xcode. So if you try to open your Linux project in Xcode, like one that's like has a dot build folder and it's sort of like being been partially built, it will complain at you and tell you that everything's built for Linux and it's the wrong architecture and whatever these things are right. And so what you I think have to do is I, and I haven't figured this part out yet and I haven't had time to, but I do want to because um, I'm missing the autocomplete from Xcode and I'm missing the like command clicking through to stuff and all those all those really lovely parts. Instant inline errors are really nice. I would really love to have those again. Um, so you have to figure out a way to get your project. I think you need two separate folders, one to have your intermittent Linux build uh, in your Docker directory and one to have your intermittent like Mac build. And so you need you know, two Git repos to everything. But as to the question of like what IDE are we using, um, right now it's just TextMate. We, I think there's cool plugins for Atom. There's cool plugins for Sublime that can help you with some of this stuff with autocomplete with inline uh, breakpoints, but we haven't messed with any of that stuff yet. Um, we've just like, we basically just write the code 
and haven't had a chance to like kind of go back and fix up some of our some of the tooling things that we'd like to make better. Um, really haven't had a chance because we've been moving like building features and doing fun stuff like that. But using TextMate isn't so bad. Uh, you basically type in TextMate and then switch to a um, terminal to like run the compiler and then and then like look at the output and try to map that back to lines of code in your TextMate, which is a little annoying. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it works pretty well. I'm glad to know I'm not the only one still using TextMate. <laughs> yeah, I like TextMate. I think it's pretty good, and I like know how to use it. I know how to like move around in it. I know how to all the hotkeys and stuff. And I probably could switch to something else, but like you know, this thing works. Yeah, I tried installing the the Swift tool for Sublime, and it just failed. I don't know if it was a <laughs> Python version thing or, or what was going on. It didn't work. I was working on like a little command line thing. I was trying to figure out like what to do, and I'm working just through Xcode. Just basically as a, yeah. a source, you know, very very dumb thing. The compilers are not going to be the same, right? They will be. And, and I think you want tools that a lot of people use, just because you know, like if a lot of people use the Swift Sublime Text plugin that you mentioned, it wouldn't be broken. And a lot of people use Xcode, and like I think you want to be where the people are, basically. So, yeah, default run of uh, default run of TextMate with a bundle for syntax highlighting for Swift, and that's pretty much it. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about the like the client side architecture. Now you mentioned that Vapor's got their own ORM. Like how do you did you use it? Like how do you define your data model? And like how do you do the mapping to either like the ORM or like a Postgres? Yeah, thing? that's a super good question. So if you're familiar with something like Rails, you know you kind of type you know property and then like a colon to like start a symbol and then you say like name, and what that does is it creates sort of um, an instance variable, it creates a mapping from the database to a field called name based on the class name of the thing with all this metaprogramming. So all you have to do is uh, add one line of code and everything then has access to, everything has access to like all the stuff it needs to do in terms of uh, creating it from the database representation, returning it to the database representation, turning it to JSON, all that stuff, which is really nice. However, Swift doesn't have any of those metaprogramming, introspection, et cetera, abilities. So you have to implement everything each time. Um, so you have one, let's say you have a class. You can do structs for your models as well. Vapor does support that. It's a protocol rather than, you know, a subclassic for active record base. And so you basically will conform to this protocol, and then you'll add a, add a you know, property in your class for each property that you expect this thing to have. Then you have um, this concept called a node, and a node is like a piece of structured data. So it's either, it's like a dictionary or an array or a, some value. And so like JSON comes in as a node, and, um, and the database representation also, like the database row also comes in as a node. And so you can basically, uh, and then they also give you a node and a context. And the context is either like JSON context or database context or any custom context that you want to add. And then you can switch on that context to decide how to parse that node into a fully-fledged um, object. So if you're basically coming in from the database, you'll basically check is it, if, if it's a database context, and then you'll pull the properties out of the database based on the names of the fields. So you have to do that manually, one line for each property in your class. And then um, likewise for JSON, if you want to init with JSON, you would do the exact same thing in a separate branch of your sort of switch. And then to go back out to the database, there's another method that works the same but is kind of its complement, uh, which is called make node, where it gives you a context and you return a node. 
And um, and so what that does, you basically again switch on the contacts, whether it's JSON or database or one of your custom ones, and then you can um, like return a new node based on the properties of your of your own current thing. So what that means, um, and then they also give you some abilities to basically declare what database tables you expect, so it can like construct your database when it uh, launches. They call those like preparations, sort of like migrations in in Rails. So what that means is that if you have, let's say, a user with a name. You have to declare a property for the name. You have to declare it once in the like database representation init, once in the JSON init, once in the database output representation, um, and then once in the JSON output representation, and then also additionally in the like kind of preparation, um, in the preparation for the for like creating the tables in the in the first place. So there's a lot of repetition. All of those words are to say that there's a ton of duplicated code and a lot of just like wrote, well, if I change this name here, I got to change it here and here and here. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit frustrating. I would like to use CodeGen to solve this problem, but Sorcery does not run on Linux yet for non-trivial reasons. So getting Sorcery to run on the server or, uh, or getting it to run on Linux or running it on the Mac and then switching back to the Linux could be a solution. But basically, it would be really nice if you could just say, here's my property, automatically snake case it for me, automatically camel case it for me, make these JSON representations, do all this stuff. And then um, and then you could also, from that, generate your client-side representations as well, so your, so your JSON always lines up. Um, but that's another project that, that we haven't had time to explore yet. Do you think the new codable stuff on Swift 4 will help solve that, that issue of duplicating stuff? Yeah, I think it'll help it a little bit. The the Vapor team, somebody asked us in their Slack, and the Vapor team hasn't publicly committed to doing anything with, with Codable. But I think because Codable gives you access to, it like kind of gives you access to that like reflection capability, you, it, I think it might actually help with some of these things. You could write custom coders and decoders that would really help you out in a lot of these cases, at least for JSON. Like JSON, you can go to and from, pretty easily just by sort of introspecting on the keys. Um, and so that would even, even just that would be nice. But uh, as for the database representation, um, it would be a little bit harder just because you need to provide custom keys. And um, maybe also, you know, if your database representation stores your dates as strings or your URLs as strings, and you want to convert those out to a more friendly type, um, you'd need to write like still some custom code to handle that stuff. So co codables like Basically, if you need it to be inedible with two different types of things, like maybe sometimes the data comes in as JSON, sometimes it comes in as NS coding or a database representation, you have to actually go into the coder, grab its user info, and then there's a property inside of there that you can switch on to determine like what type of decoding you could do. So at the end of the day, if you had to write a, a lot of custom code for it, you would end up with a really similar setup where you're switching on some parameter and doing custom stuff based on that. So it would help a little bit, especially in the really, really simple cases. But for more complex cases, you definitely will still be writing some code. Okay. What, what about cases, and maybe your app doesn't do this yet, but when you're getting past like the simple CRUD apps or like active mm -hmm. record type things, um, did you get any more complex cases of your data models, like using a couple more of your models at the same time? Ye I don't follow. So do you mean like basically having like, what does our model graph look like? Or um, <clears throat> did you get to the point where you're kind of going behind beyond what the, the standard cases are, the simple like CRUD, you know, create this database record, pull it out, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So like, uh, I don't know if relationships is something that is, you know, complex enough or kind of exactly what you're talking about, but even relationships are a place where vapor is like kind of, kind of flaky. Um, I think vapor two is better at a lot of that stuff, but like vapor 1.5, which is what we're on, for example, you can't give it a custom foreign key, you know? So if an event has an organizer ID, you can't get to like, you, you, it has to like, and it ties to the user table. It has to be called user ID. So like even simple stuff like that, it kind of can't do yet. So you end up writing a little bit of custom SQL. I think they fixed that particular one in Vapor 2, but there's still other holes, even in really, really simple stuff where you just end up having to drop down to SQL and just like mapping yourself and just having to do all that stuff yourself. Okay. No, very cool. It's good to hear where the ecosystem is with the backend stuff because most of us are developing iOS apps and some of us are starting to get a little bit into the server stuff, but not real heavy. Right. One thing that we wanted to get to before we run out of time is, you know, what are your plans for this app? Is this a purely open source side project? Are you looking to monetize? Uh, what, what's the future for Beacon? Yeah, um, we we want to try our hand at turning Beacon into a business. And for that reason, we haven't open sourced anything yet. Uh, I've talked about a couple of sort of the problems we've had, uh, like the interesting problems that we've solved on the server side. Um, in blog posts, but other than that, we haven't open sourced any code. Um, so we're shooting for making this more of a business. We want to start off with conferences um, and conventions. So basically, if a, if a conference like decides to work with us, they will get sort of a custom feed for just that conference. And then um, we, we build features like, so for example, 360 iDev is the first partner um, for this, this like sales program that we're basically doing. Uh, and the way that it works is when you open your app uh, in Denver, it will ask you, hey, it looks like you're in Denver and 360 IW, you know, starts soon. Uh, are you a 360 IW attendee? Like, would you like to join that feed? Um, and then if you tap yes, it'll add you to that feed and then you'll be able to see all the events by 360 IW users. And so like, and then there's also going to be like a more like a secret activation code if the conference doesn't necessarily want to let anybody into their conference who's in the area. Um, so there's also an activation mode. And so basically once the users get access to this channel, then they can like kind of organize events and, um, we can get some of the, some of the magic that we had at WWDC, like, uh, speakers putting their talks into the app and then having like a little discussion area, all, all those like wonderful little, like little get togethers and, um, stuff like that can go into the app. And then with official, you know, support from the, from the conference itself, then we can also add official conference events in there as well. So if there's like a big dinner that everybody's at. We can kind of create an event for that and people can talk about it and say like, oh, where are the buses picking us up? Like, how do we get there? What's the deal? Is this in ballroom A or ballroom B? That kind of thing. Um, and kind of becoming a way for people at conferences to organize um, and find cool things to do. Um, I know, for example, when I was at, uh, when I was in Japan uh, for TriSwift Tokyo, there were definitely things that we organized that if we had a tool like this, we would have had a little bit more clarity around how, how, how some of the things were organized, where we were meeting, how to get there. So that's kind of the, the magic that we're hoping to capture with this thing. That's cool because you, know, you, you go to WWC and people may complain about the community, the Apple community, but there is a community. You can find something to do even if yeah. it's you know, some sponsored party. We have to wait half hour for drinking is loud. <laughs> but you know, I, I've been going to Microsoft conferences because they've been flying us out there to do in to do podcast episodes 
and like, oh, okay, well, I don't, I know the people from the podcast and not that many other people. I'm like, oh, I'll just check out my Twitter feed to see if anyone's doing anything and like just nothing. Yeah. So like a lot of conferences have like no community at all. Like maybe if you know the right vendor, they rented out a place, but you can't get in. You're not on the guest list. <laughs> so uh, it's a really cool thing. I, I wish, I hope more conferences like can get on board with this because it's, you know, I just want to try out this restaurant and okay, that sounds cool. That's a thing that I do quite often and doesn't always happen. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think Apple conferences are really unique in the fact that like a lot of people are friends. We do, like you say, have a sense of community and some of these bigger corporate ones don't have that at all. And, um, giving people the ability to, to like, to like self-organize like that. I think, uh, I mean, we're, we're betting on this. Like it's a, it's a big value for the conference organizers. We can basically take like the worry out of like, well, how am I, how are my attendees going to network? And we can kind of offload that onto Beacon and we can kind of help you out as a conference organizer. So if there's any conference organizers uh, listening to this podcast, hit us up. Um, we would love to talk to you. Uh, there we go. Uh, anything else we should get to before the, before the picks? Um, any questions about server-side Swift? Uh, anything else that like anybody wants to know? I don't know if Erica... Do you, you have like three great lessons for anyone trying to do server-side Swift? Okay, three great lessons. This is this is hard to do unprepared. Um, I think I touched on this, but definitely develop on Linux um, and get deploying as soon as you can. We had one particular bug with Base64 encoding that worked fine locally in our Docker Linux, but was very, very crashy um, on uh, Heroku. And it took me, I'm not exaggerating, over 10 hours to debug this thing. So like the, the more frequently, and oh, and part of the problem was that there was no stack trace um, on with the setup that we had. So we couldn't tell what exactly was crashing. And so it was just a process of commenting code out, deploying, and seeing if the crash persisted. It was really bad. So deploy as frequently as you can. And like, and like, if you if you can like develop straight in Linux, I mean, unless you're planning to like deploy this to like a co-located Mac Mini or something, but yeah, deploy to Linux and deploy frequently uh, would be one big one. Another big one is I would say don't be afraid to leverage Swift and to bring like really really good abstractions um, to your thing. So one example. Um, that we have is uh, we have like we needed to version the API. Um, I mentioned earlier that we made the attendance limit be optional, and previous versions of the API were expecting that value to always be there. And you can't really pass negative one; that's going to break things. You can't. You got to pass something reasonable. And so we made a version of the API to say, well, if it's an old version, return the current attendee count plus one, so it always has availability. And if it's a new version, just return nil if you if you feel like it. And so once we built that, you know, ability to version things, we also then, so versioning became an enum. Um, and so it's like, you know, V1 is one case, V2 is one case, V3 and so on. And then the enum is also comparable. So you can say if request.version is less than V3, do this. And if request.version is greater than V2, do this. And so like leaning on the beautiful, wonderful, magical Swift features that we have makes your code nicer, makes it easier to read and is generally just, Really nice. So lean on Swift. Like you know Swift. You can do really awesome, fun things with Swift. And then what is my third lesson for people who want to get started with this stuff? Um, I would say 
I think it's important to build something real. Um, it's fine to build like a toy project or just to like, you know, build a simple API just to see what things are like. But you're not going to know what it really, really feels like until you try to build something real in it. Um, you're not going to hit those limits of, as, as Jane was asking about earlier, of like, okay, well, what about if I take this to the next level beyond just CRUD? Like what things am I going to run into? Like I'm going to have to worry about, you know, database performance and index tuning and just all of this, all of this stuff that's more intense than, than your day-to-day just like client-side Swift job is huge potential to grow. And so I think like, I think, yeah, try, try to build something real with it. So those are some takeaways. I hope those are satisfying. <laughs> Thank you. Those are. <laughs> yeah. Two thumbs up. I think, I think those are good. I would, yeah. have, I would have even accepted moderately useful picks, but uh, <laughs> these, were, these were good. Nice. So uh, yeah, we're running low on time. So let's, let's get to the picks. This episode is brought to you by Gamefly.com. Gamefly has over 8,000 new releases and classics available to rent for Xbox One, Xbox 360, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 3, PS Vita, Wii U, Wii, and 3DS, as well as older systems. As a Gamefly member, you can rent as many console or handheld games as you want and get them delivered right to your mailbox for one low monthly fee. If you like a game so much that you don't want to send it back, you can keep it for a low used price. There are never any due dates or late fees. Gamefly also offers the ability to rent Blu-ray and DVD movies as part of the regular service at no extra charge. They're offering a premium three-day trial for free. That's one game out shipped directly to you with a pre-addressed envelope included for easy returns. No contracts. Cancel any time. You can get this 30-day free trial at GameflyOffer.com slash devchat. That's GameflyOffer.com slash devchat for a 30-day free trial. Guy, what do you have for us? I think I'm going to pick the iPhone 8 because it's awesome. That awesome face recognition stuff, the thin bezel. Have you seen that? I have not, but that that sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all those leaks look really crazy. I kind of can't believe... I can't believe that all that stuff is like has been leaked. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, that's my pick. All right, Erica. Okay, um, I I never do good picks, so I always have pick anxiety. This week, I'm going to suggest the deprecated Google Charts API, <laughs> and the reason that I pick the deprecated one as opposed to the active one is that. You can use them from Swift Playgrounds, and it's a fully RESTful API. And if you try to use the current Google Charts API, it's just a real pain to use. But if you sneak back to the deprecated one, it's still live. It's been live forever. It looks like it's never going to go away. And for Playgrounds, where you don't need to have that contract between you and Google, to you know, have this you know stay for you know years and years and years to come. It is so beautiful and easy to use, and you can throw charts into your playgrounds and use them in live views. It's just so handy and so simple. That sounds really cool. I like. I'd like to check that out. So I've got one pick, and instead of going with pick anxiety, I'm just going to do an old pick I picked like two weeks ago, which is even old, but it's relevant to what we're talking today. So there's a good blog post by Swift by Sundell that talks about getting started doing command line Swift development. 
and something I use because I've been hacking on stuff recently and just helps you get started with the Swift package manager and they're all the real basic elements. So I'm going to do a repick, um, but that's my pick for today. Uh, Sarush, what do you have for us? Uh, is it cheesy if I pick like, you know, building servers in Swift? I think that is a bit cheesy. It might be cheesy, but we're okay with it. <laughs> but nevertheless, it is fun. It really, like, I feel like I can move at a speed I don't feel hampered by like the lack of a type system of JS and Ruby. I feel amazing. I love it. Um, it's so much fun. I recommend it to everyone. I hopefully never have to touch JavaScript again. Fingers crossed. Um, that's my pick. It's good to have goals in life. And that's what that's I right. So, yeah, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Uh, for sure, yeah. Uh, I have a Twitter account. It's at my last name, Kanlu, K-H-A-N-L-O-U. And then I also have a blog which I try to write on frequently, but sometimes fail. And that's at mylastname.com, K-H-A-N-L-O-U.com. Excellent. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks for coming on, Saroosh. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was super fun. Yeah, it was uh, cool to hear about the app and see where it's going because I I enjoyed using it at at, at DubDub. So for everyone else, we'll talk to you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.